Um, I do want to share another parable, uh, parable with you today. We're going to be in Luke chapter 16. This is a fun one. Uh, as I've told you before, the parables, when I grew up, I was taught that the parables were ways that Jesus wanted to take complex messages and communicate them so anyone could understand them. Uh, and I believe that for, for a long time. And, but if you go back and you look at what Jesus says about parables, Jesus actually says the exact opposite. <laughs> Jesus doesn't say, I'm trying to make this easy for you to understand. What Jesus says is, I speak in parables so only the people can get it that are listening and looking because everyone else will miss the point. And so when we understand most of Jesus' teaching is, is in this vein, uh, it really changes the way we understand how Jesus taught, how Jesus reached out to others, but also how the gospel works in the world, not only then, but today. So as we go through this parable, this is one of the parables that is not one of those feel-good parables. There are some that are kind of fun, and I'm going to mention one of those today that is just kind of endearing and heartwarming, and you just feel warm and fuzzy when you read it. This is not one of those parables. So I hope you guys will strap in. And if you're our guest, I hope you'll stick around for the whole thing. So stick around for this. And, uh, but I do want to um, walk through and understand that the message that we're talking about here, the message of the gospel is not just something that you add to your life. What Jesus is constantly trying to get his hearers to understand is that this is a life transformation. This is not just a commitment to a belief. It's not just a commitment to really work hard to be better. Instead, it's a commitment the way he would describe it as the way. And in fact, many of the very first believers were, they, when we talked about them, were not called Christians. The very first believers were called followers of the way because they believed there was a way in which to live life. And Jesus said, there is a way, I am the way, but few will find it. And the reality for us, and this is one of the things we struggle with in the church in, in this country, is that there are so many people that go to church, we sometimes question whether Jesus was right. Maybe we're a little better at evangelism than Jesus was, right? Because we have a whole nation, we have the Bill of Rights and the Constitution, it's all about Jesus, right? And so we're just the Christian nation. In fact, many people believe that. This is not the way Jesus talked. Now, if you are a believer in, in God working in our nation, I am as well. I am a firm believer that God wants to do incredible things, and God has done incredible things through this country. But in the spread of the gospel, one of the things that Jesus did when confronted with a crowd of people was to challenge them to find out, do you really believe what I'm saying? And most of the time when he did that, the listeners left. They did not stick around. Now that's something we have to battle through as we read this. And the reason, and one of the reasons that Jesus taught like this is because Jesus knew that the wages for this are high. The cost for getting this wrong is eternal. And this is actually part of what the parable is going to teach us. And it's challenging. It should be challenging for you. It's challenging for me. But some of the things as we look through his parables, that low-lying fruit that you maybe have heard of uh, what a parable means, sometimes there's even a deeper meaning, which is why we've called this series, the series The Secret Teachings of I can't talk. The Secret Teachings of Jesus. When we dig deeper, we find greater meaning, a deeper message, not only hope for the ways that we're living our lives, but a call in which to follow him to greater extents. 
So let's look at Luke chapter 16. We're going to begin with verse 19. I want you to understand this follows another parable, the parable of the dishonest manager. I'm not going to read it. The bottom line of the dishonest manager is Jesus is saying, here's a manager given great resources, and he squandered his resources. And the owner of which he was a manager cast him out, and he had great struggle and great suffering because he had not managed what he had received well. And this is the passage where Jesus says, you cannot serve two masters. You've got to find one and serve that master. He follows that parable immediately up with this parable that is called the rich man in Lazarus, or some of your some of your Bibles, depending on the translation, may call it the great chasm, which already feels good, doesn't it? You're already excited to get started, right? So let's go ahead and get started. Luke chapter 16, beginning with verse 19, it says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, not the same Lazarus that you've heard of before, but there was a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, and that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead, of which Jesus would do. <laughs> As we look through this parable, the story itself is not hard to comprehend, is it? In fact, some of you have heard something like this uh, many times. If you uh, came up in a religious system that was very much evangelistic in the sense that they wanted you to get saved and make sure you were saved and you needed to know you were saved 100% because if you weren't 100% saved, I, I remember Dieter and I have talked in the past when we were growing up, we would hear revivalists say, if you're only 99% sure, you're 100% lost. And we would be like, whoa, we better get saved. <laughs> you know, that's not good. Because I'm not sure in many parts of my life how, how many times I feel 100% like I've done, you know, what I'm supposed to do. And as we read this passage, certainly there are some great stakes here. 
Certainly there's a high cost to the message of the gospel, and this is a reminder of Jesus saying, there really is a heaven and a hell. There really is coming a time when we have to decide, and there's coming a time when that decision will no longer be possible. And many of us have heard this parable, and that is what we take away from it. This is serious. This is serious business, and if you don't live right, you're going to go to hell. But if we really dig into his parable, while that is certainly true, there's a lot more here that Jesus is trying to communicate. But those who are listening will take the time to look and to listen and to see when others will not. So as we look through this, one of the things that I want you to understand throughout our time in this parable is that what you do in this life will matter for eternity. Now, I say that because some of you are living a life of going to work and coming home and going to work and coming home and going to work and coming home, and you often question yourself and say, does, does this matter? Does my life matter? Or the ways that I'm living my life, does it really matter? Because we all know somebody who's killing it in life, right? We all know somebody who's doing it all right, and we're like, I just, how did I, how did I miss that? <laughs> You know, we all have that guy at school that we graduated with and we thought they'll never live. I mean, they won't make it. They can't make it. And now, you know, they're running this multi-million dollar company. We're like, how did I miss it? And the reality is when you look at your life, it's very easy if, if you are following Jesus to say, is this what it's all about? And the reason I say that is because so much in our culture is the need for more, the need for success the need to be elevated over others, that the quiet call to follow Jesus sometimes get lost, gets lost in that. But it is that quiet call of Jesus that revolutionizes and transforms your life and allows you to see a world that is different than the world that everyone else around you was clamoring to get a piece of. How we live our life now, what we do in this life, the choices we make, the decisions we make, the way we treat others, the way we treat God, the way we approach God, all of that matters for all eternity so that the time that you and I are spending on this earth and the span of what our soul is going to spend with God in heaven is minuscule. Your, your time as a child, your time in the workforce, your time in retirement, the time that you die, while that feels like a long time to us in the span of what all God wants to do and is doing, in your life and in the world, it is intended to be eternal. But the truth is, how we live this life now, how we respond to God's call now, it does have an effect for all of eternity. I was reminded this week, and as a pastor, I'm reminded of this often, really, that there are certain life events that make us stop and reconsider the ways that we're living our lives. Within the church, there are two events, life events, that tend to cause a person to reassess the way they're living their life. One is the birth of a child, because now you're responsible for this child, and you're like, I want to do right by this child. And, you know, every one of us, you know, had parents that probably weren't the ideal parent. At least that's what we thought when we were kids. I mean, none of us thought, man, our, my parents just are right about everything. Every time they call me down, they're right. I mean, they're just right. You know, we, that's not the way I lived my life. Maybe that's the way you lived yours. But we all want to do better than our parents, right? As we get older, we realize we literally morph into our parents, right? 
we remind ourselves of that, and it's not a fun reminder. You're just like you're whoever. Uh, that's always never a good conversation, right? But the birth of a child spawns something in us to say, is this really the way to live life? Am I passing on to now my child? Am I passing on what is real and true? And are they going to experience the, a full life based on what I teach them? But the second one is always when someone dies. There's just something that happens when someone dies that it captures our attention and puts our thoughts not just on this life but the next. And in those two events, people often will stop and reconsider, is this the right path that I'm on? I know for some in this community, that was made very evident in the last couple of weeks when a teenager went out on an ATV and had a wreck and hit a pole, had a brain injury, and he passed away this week. He went to our kids' school. Our kids knew him, but they weren't real close with him. But some of you may have been because he was very popular uh, in the area. Those types of events have a tendency to make us stop in our tracks and ask ourselves, are the things that I think are important right now really important? And when Jesus calls us, that is constantly the invitation that he starts with. Are the things that you're living your life for right now really worth it? Are they really giving you what you want? In the last couple of weeks, we've talked about contentment and the reality that what Jesus is offering us is contentment in a world that is never content. We think, I just need one more thing, and when I have that one more thing, I'll be happy, and we get the one more thing, and we are happy until the next thing we don't have. And it's just a constant roller coaster of ups and downs of being happy and not happy, happy and not happy, happy and not happy. And then if we ever lose something, that was important to us, we were just devastated. We don't know how to live because that was a thing that made us happy and content with our lives. But Jesus is constantly inviting us to look deeper, but to understand that the wages and the costs that we are going to incur based on how we live our lives and the decisions that we make are going to matter. It's made harder in this time and in this place because we're right now seeing kind of a meltdown within the church in many different ways. And if we don't if we don't recognize that, then we're missing what's going on in the world because the church is in many ways melting down in some ways. Not the church of those who are following Jesus, but the church who have learned how to create a religious system in which we can get you to come and help us be successful in our organization. That's falling apart. And the reason that's falling apart is because that is not what it looks like to really follow Jesus. That's what it looks like to take the message of the gospel and to use it for personal gain, which is what the priests did. It's what the Pharisees and the Sadducees did. And that's what Jesus said when he walked in and he overturned the money changers. You have made the opportunity to worship me and know me. You have made it something just for your own thievery. And there's no missing the blogs and articles and things that are talking about how messed up the church is and how worthless it is. But I will tell you that the church is more relevant today than it has ever been. The way we understand what the church is and our role in it, if it hasn't changed, it needs to. As we look at this parable and we look at the cost, we recognize that the invitation to follow Jesus is not just, do you want to come to church with me? The invitation to follow Jesus is literally, where will you spend your eternity? Scripture tells us that there's going to be a time that every person, every doubter is going to say that Jesus really is Lord. 
There are some that have taken the gospel and they've adjusted it a little and just said, well, we'll after that time, then you can still repent and accept Christ. There are those that are teaching that, but that is not what Scripture says. There is a time to make a decision, and the time to make the decision will end. And if you've not made the decision, it will be too late. And this is what the parable says. And it will be miserable in that moment. I think the people that understand this the, the quickest and the deepest are those who have ever made a great mistake in their life. Has anybody in here done that? I don't mean like I left my keys. I mean like you royally messed up your life. And you say, you know what? <laughs> I know what it's like to have deep, deep regret. <laughs> and when we look at this parable, you can imagine that some of the torment, and there's a lot of misunderstanding, or really there's just a lot of imagery we don't truly understand about what hell is. I, there's, it's been described as a trash heap. It's been described as a place of fire. But really, honestly, what it is, the, the torment is not that, that God has just decided to make you physically burn. I mean, your, your body, you're not even with your body anymore. The torment is the fact that you are not with the one that you now recognize loves you intensely, gave his life for you, and is the Lord of all things. And we have the opportunity to spend an eternity with Him, and now it's gone. As we look at this, it's hard to read. It's hard to take this in. It feels very judgmental. It feels very final. It doesn't feel very loving at all. And, and right now, we're trying so hard to look loving because we've made so many mistakes in the area of loving others in the past. But it is not loving to tell someone something that is true is not true. And what Jesus is trying to communicate with us is this is, this is the, the stakes of your life. You're choosing to follow Jesus are eternal. As we break this down, there's a few things that I really would like to, to kind of pull out and have you think about as you leave here. One of the things that as we look at this parable, it's easy to look at the rich man and go, hey, you are not the smartest person in the world. How did you get so rich? <laughs> It's also easy to look at Lazarus and think, wow, Lazarus was a big trap for him. As we look at the story of the rich man and Lazarus, most of us would think, I want to be the rich man, not Lazarus. Even Jesus says in the parable, the rich man got all the good things, Lazarus got all the bad things. How is Lazarus loved? And the truth is, in the way that, the God, that, that God looks at us and looks at the world and the relationships that you have is literally the rich man and Lazarus were put into each other's life for each other. And yet the rich man missed it. See, the Lazarus was, was put in this place. The rich man wasn't in the, he didn't have the chasm separating him from God because he was rich. The chasm wasn't there because he ate well. The chasm was there because he failed to see his opportunity to care for others, which is where the gospel will lead you. The gospel is communal. The gospel brings people together. The church is never mentioned as an individual. That's why when we have religious systems that are based on an individual, it's no longer the gospel. When we talk about the church as an individual, whether that be 
someone like the Pope or someone who's a very popular pastor, someone who writes a lot of books and speaks really well, when we talk about the church in terms of their name, then we have left the church. We've entered into something else. And they were given to each other. Lazarus had the rich man to help care for his needs. And the rich man had Lazarus to pull him into a deeper understanding of life. And he missed it. I'm going to ask you a few questions throughout the morning, but one thing I want you to think about is who has God put in your life that maybe you even think they're a leech, but God has met them to bring you something. Many people have we separated relationships with because you know what? I just don't like you. And yet God has put them in our lives. And we have created a chasm between us and them. God intended for the rich man and Lazarus to help each other. A few things I want you to pull out of this and think about over this next week. Number one, I've already mentioned this, the choices that we make now will affect us forever. Your choices right now, how you live your life, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, who you spend your time with, what is the focus of your heart, where are you worshiping, where are you rejoicing, what is the thing that is most precious to you, Those choices are things that are going to affect you forever. They're not just right now. I mean, they're forever. It's not just for this part of your life. This is forever. These choices will affect you forever. And if you don't see the gospel in terms of the fact that there is an eternity out there that we have an invitation to experience, then you will miss much of the teachings of Jesus because we tend to think everything that's good in life happens here in this place. But what Jesus is literally trying to say is, yeah, this stuff is just, you know, as, as I've heard others say, this is literally just the dress rehearsal. The real thing has still yet to come. But it's what we do in this place and in this time that will determine what is to come. The choices that we make now will affect us to others. A second thing is this. God is still more concerned with your heart than your appearance. We see this all throughout Scripture. <laughs> It's introduced to us with Samuel and David. And Samuel's picking the king that's going to succeed Saul. And he goes and looks at all of Jesse's sons. And he sees some of the older guys. And they're tall and good looking and strong. And they look like good king material. And that's where God whispers to Samuel that we all experience today in even deeper ways. And that is the fact that I'm looking at what's going on inside of you not this exterior that you have created. See, in the terms of the economy in which you and I live in this world, the terms of of how we're supposed to live and what is good and what feels good in this world, we should look at the rich man and say, "He he has experienced real life. He ate well. He had a nice home. Lots of people wanted to be around him. He was successful. He wasn't a failure. You know, he was healthy, lived a long life. How many of us don't want to live that life? At the end of the day, Lazarus had nothing of that, but what God is saying is is his heart was pure. He didn't look successful. Looked miserable. He was miserable. And yet his heart is more important than that. This is one of the things that we have to look at and understand that the 
difference between successful and poor, the way the world sees it and the way God sees it are completely different. Some of you are thinking, I just, I mean, I'm not, I'm no count. That's what I've got family members say that. You know what that means? I'm no count. I'm no value, no worth. I'm no good, no count. Because I don't have people looking to me for all the answers. Because I'm not successful. My name's not up on a wall somewhere to be praised. I don't have a big bank account showing people how smart I am and how good I am at what I do. And as we look at this dichotomy, being successful, being poor, Jesus says over and over again, ah, if that's what you think being rich is, you have completely missed the point. We all have the opportunity to be rich no matter what our bank account says. And I find some of the people that are most content and love life most completely are not those who we would consider most successful. I've shared before some of the statistics that are brought out. There are groups around the world that are constantly looking at the quality of life, and the World Health Organization is one of those. And several years ago, they did a, a study based on quality of life. I've mentioned this before, but quality of life based on a scale of different things. And that scale is you know, based on access to clean water, access to food, access to health care, and just what, how they would perceive their own quality of life. They compared that with the uh, individual per capita of people in a nation, and they compared who were the wealthiest based on these other indicators of quality of life. And it's interesting that the ones who were most satisfied with their life had the lowest income, least access to health care, least access to all of these other things that we think are necessary. Now, the point is not that those things make you miserable. The point is, is you can find fullness without having to have everything else. And that's what Jesus is offering us. Now, it's awful nice when you have that and health care and clean water and food, right? That's nice to have it all. I'd like to have it all. But the offer Jesus is making us is not dependent on your ability to work well, to make money, and to have other people lavish praise on you. And instead, it is what's going on in your heart and what is your relationship with God. Third thing I see in this parable that I want you to think about is What do we do with the resources that God has given us? It really does. What we do with it really does matter. I sometimes read these. The prophets are really good at making you feel terrible for owning anything. Literally. Like if you own something, you're the most wretched person on the planet. You know, and talks about living in our whitewashed tombs. Jesus describes the rich man as the one who ate sumptuously. He had everything he ever needed, but he never gave to anyone who didn't. I understand parables are allegories. I don't think there was actually a rich man and actually a Lazarus, although this story could be played out in any number of people throughout time. What we do with our resources really does matter. That's why you're supposed to tithe at the church unless you want to go to hell. I'm just kidding. That's not what it means. That is not what it means. But be honest. Some of you have heard that. You've heard it, right? Some of you have heard it before. If you want to throw an extra 20 in, that would be fine too. (laughs) No shame. There's no shame up here. 
on this stage. What we do with the resources that God has given us really does matter. It really does. And that is not just your checkbook. That's your winning personality. What do you do with that? One of the things we try to teach our kids, and I know many of you are trying to do the same thing. And listen, it's not just kids. When you're an adult, it's just as as pertinent. Do we use whatever social capital we do have? Some of us have more than others, let's be honest. Do we use what we do have to help those who don't? Do we come to the rescue of those who are diminished, for those who are on the outside, those who are criticized, those who nobody wants to have anything to do with? Do we come to them or do we stay away because it threatens our own social capital? Is there a group of people out there that I will not be caught dead near? I just don't go around those kinds of people. Many of the conversations we're having now about how people are not being treated fairly. I think a lot of them are quite honestly being used for political and monetary reasons. People are trying to make money off of inequality. That doesn't mean to say there's not inequality. There absolutely is. But the kind of systemic inequality, there are places that does happen. If you work with the poor, if you work with those who are really downtrodden, you'll see some systematic inequalities going on. Not always meant to keep them down, but yet the system itself is not really helping them. But many times it's being used instead to gain a political career, to get funding for some kind of business that's going to help in these areas. But still, we have to examine our own hearts and ask ourselves, is there a group of people that I myself look down upon? Do I look down upon someone who has a different skin color? Do I look down upon somebody who doesn't have their life together? Do I look down upon another religious group because I just don't believe what they believe? Who do I look down on? And who do I stay away? And I keep at arm's length because they're not quite good enough to be near me. That does still happen in us. And, and if we're honest, every one of us, there's somebody that we marginalize. Every one of us. It's one of the reasons that repentance, the way of life of repentance is so crucial. The way of life of repentance is not meant for you to go around like Jesus is so happy because his followers think they're so terrible. I mean, that is really not the point of repentance. But a lifestyle of repentance, what it actually leads you to is a great deal of introspection to find out what's really going on inside of me. And the saddest thing is when you see somebody and it's clear to everyone else what's broken, but they themselves are blind to it. And so they just continue time and time again into these same things where anybody who's watching can say, you know what, if you really don't want to live that way anymore, this is the issue. But they're blind to it. One of the beautiful things about repentance is is it leads us to healing, but it opens up this whatever garbage that's inside of us that is poisoning us. And it allows us to get it out. What we do with the resource that God has given us really does matter. And sometimes that chasm has been created by us. The parable would say that chasm is always created by us. 
But sometimes that chasm isn't just with God. Sometimes that chasm is with, chasm is with other people. You know, I think one of the most heart-wrenching things to watch is when someone does die and there's a friend or a family member that they've had unresolved conflict. To watch them mourn is painful because they know the opportunity to make amends with this family member is now gone. Some people never recover from that. They'll live their entire lives chasing after memories of loved ones because they felt that there was something left unaddressed and now the time has come and gone. That that is exactly how the rich man was feeling in torment. Why did we not deal with that? Why did we not close that chasm when we could have? Why did we let it go on? And, you know, I know sometimes they're just really serious issues at stake, and, but most of the time they're not. We're just mad at each other. And, and we don't even have to, that's not just family. We just do that with people in general, don't we? It's so easy to get mad at people. I mean, I get mad at you if you're taking too long in the aisle at Walmart. That's why I don't go to Walmart anymore. It is so easy to get mad, right? I mean, I'm driving down the road, and I got somewhere to go, and you are going the speed limit. What is wrong with you? It's so easy to get mad. And, you know, some of those viral videos that are so much fun to watch are the people with road rage, and they get out of the car, and someone, like, does a beat down on them right on the side. You're like, Yes! I wish I could have done that. I felt so good. Because we're always the one that's the victim. We're never the victimizer, right, in our own story. It's so easy to get mad at people. Most of the time, it's over silly stuff. Not always. But most of the time, it's over silly stuff. And that unresolved conflict, what it's doing is it's killing us. It's poisoning us from within. And we create this chasm in which God has intended for us from the very beginning to restore relationships to care for others. This is one of the reasons I hate the news. I feel like much of the news is meant to just pit us against each other. Jesus wants us to come together. The church is literally the body of Christ, the body made of each, uh, with each other. We, we no longer are who we were. We are a part of something bigger, something better. What we do with the resource that God has given us really does matter. And that really, that does include our, our winning personalities, those of us who have them and those of us who don't, we admire in you greatly. Where we spend our time, who we spend our time with, what we spend our time doing. The treasures that we do have. What do we do with our finances? It's amazing, depending on how many people you ask, if you wanted to eradicate poverty, how much would it really cost? Which, honestly, I always take those with a grain of salt. Like, they really have done the economics on that. It's never happened in the history of the world, but you've got an Excel spreadsheet that'll tell us how to do it. But in almost every case, the amount is so much lower than stuff we spend ridiculous amounts of money on for nothing. What we do with our treasure, we're going to hold account to that. It's not so much just what we say, and this is what I think Jesus is really trying to get at. It's not the exterior that you try to present. It's who are you? 
Who are you? That's why someone can be absolutely broken and they can have lived a terrible life. They are repentant before God, just as we looked at the Pharisee and the tax collector last week. They can be absolutely broken before him and the one who in pride and puffs their chest out and says, I'm such a good Christian, never knew Jesus. And yet the one who others look down on and say, what a terrible person because of their brokenness on the inside, they say, oh God, I'm wretched. Forgive me, I'm a sinner. And he welcomes them into his family. It's not the way the world works, is it? It's the way Jesus works. The fourth thing is how we respond to God really does matter. This is, as a pastor, this is what I see as the greatest need of this generation to redefine is how do we respond to God See, I know what your lives are like because my life is like yours. We work. We have family activities that we do, that we have kids. Kids have activities that we do, and we have very little time, extra time. I mean, I know a lot of you just sit around looking for something to do, right? There's literally probably nobody in here that applies to. There are times we have to look at, is the time we're spending, are we spending it in the right ways? Are we responding to God in the right ways? Do we just see God as, I'm going to squeeze you in on Sunday between 10.30 and 12, and if it's, I'm going to, I should get some extra crowns in heaven if Mark preaches over again this week, you know, because I, I, then that's longer. I should get credit for that. And we come and we worship and we sing and we go, oh man, like today, gosh, it was just beautiful. All the voices up here and just everyone sharing and, and oh, it's just beautiful. I mean, it just, could almost just do that all day. <laughs> and yet we come looking for what did the worship do for me? Rather than what if, what do I get to worship about God today? And in this moment, He is so good. He is so loving. He's given so much. There are so many things I can say thank you to Him. I can praise Him in so many different ways. I've just seen His hand all throughout my week. I just, gonna, I just need to stop now. And I'll tell you, if you view worship that way, you know as well as I do, if you only worship on Sundays, you're missing worship. Worship happens all throughout the week. It's the opportunity to see God at work. And I'll tell you, the reason I'm a Christian today is because I see God at work. Otherwise, I'd quit all this, to be quite honest, because it's a real pain sometimes. You know, religion, there's a reason that people hate religion. Because I hate it too. <laughs> but when you see Jesus, when you experience Jesus, when you see him at work, you just... You're enamored. You're in awe. Wow. So I know there are many of you, and I, gosh, I keep having more and more conversations of the things that God is doing in me, He's doing in you. And we are so desperate to see God do something real among us. But are we giving Him the attention so that we see it? There are times that God does so much, and I wonder if we've missed it, because we didn't have eyes to see and ears to hear. How we respond to God really does matter. Now, this, I don't want this to fall into that. If you're 99% sure you're saved, you're 100% unsaved. I don't want to fall into that, but I do want to say this. There's something within you that's going to tell you, yes, I love Jesus. He is the most important thing to me. And there's a part of you that's going to say, mm, not really, if he's not. That's the Holy Spirit. 
So my question to you is, what chasms are your current choices creating with God? Understand, your current choices are either bridging the chasm or they're creating a chasm. Repentance is the great bridge builder. But what are the choices you're making? What are the choices you're making with how you live your life, how you spend your time, who you spend your time with? Now understand this, spending your time with other people. This is another thing I want to address before we quit today. But we're called to spend time with people who don't believe what we believe. We're called to spend time with people that don't have the same values that we value. We're called to spend time with people that quite honestly even hate us. We're called to go to them and you know, love them. Jesus goes so far as to say, you need to love your enemy. So who are we supposed to love? Well, who hates you the most? Love them too. <laughs> you know, that's who we're supposed to love. We're supposed to go. We are supposed to have relationships, but at the same time, there is a difference. I have relationships with people that I would never go and ask them, you know, I'm struggling with how to live my life. Can you help me with that? There are some people that if I gave them that control of my life, it would be a quick spiral down, right? You know people like that. Maybe you are some of those people at times. I know I've been in my life. But then there are people that you invest in, that you are there to love and to care for. They are friends, and you fully love them. You have them in your home. You will do whatever. If they need something, you're there for them. But you do not give them influence in your life so that your life begins to mimic theirs. There is only one person in which we are allowed to mimic our lives after, and that is Jesus. So who are the people that you're spending most of your time with? I find people that regularly do not spend time with other Christians regularly do not feel they're growing in their faith. That doesn't mean that you need to stop spending time. There was a time when I first started ministry, and I don't remember who, Barna or somebody came out with some research that said that the average person when they became a Christian within six months knew nobody that wasn't a Christian. That was a time long ago. Those times have changed. I mean, that's not the way it is now. But I remember thinking then, how does this happen? How does this happen? How do we love Jesus and then all of a sudden we ignore all the people he loves? Who we spend our time with, those are choices that we make. And are they leading us to bridge the chasm or are they creating a bigger one? Are the people that you spend your, the most of your time with constantly pulling you away from Christ or constantly directing you towards him? No, this is a, it's a hard line to walk. to fully love everyone, but to be cautious about who we allow to have the greatest voice within our lives. It's tough. How we respond to other people also really does matter. Like today, some of you have already had a conversation here today you've already forgotten about, but you have no idea what effect it had on somebody else. Some of you walked in and you said, hey, how are you doing? And that's all they needed. You don't know that. You not even thought about it. You're going to leave here and go, well, I guess I'm glad I went to church. I guess I hope I'm not in the other end of the chasm. Um, let's go eat. You know, that's, you may be tempted to walk out of here like that, and yet you have no idea what you just giving someone a side hug, you know, the Christian side hug, a side hug did for somebody. <laughs> you have no idea. I know everybody hates the meet and greets. Stand up and shake a neighbor's hand. Oh my gosh, I don't, want to, I don't know these people. I don't want to shake their hand. That's why we do it. So you'll know them. <laughs> you have no idea what that means to somebody, even if for you it means nothing. This is why coming to church is so important. It's not because we've got to fill up seats. 
It's not because we get to pat ourselves on the back because we have more people coming to our church than you got coming to your church. So a lot of pastors do, do, they talk about that stuff. The point is, you have a ministry here. And you have no idea how powerful your ministry is unless you are seeing the way Jesus sees. Some of our volunteers that are out here, they've had a long week. They're tired. They're out with kids. Your kids, I know, they're precious and perfect for you. They're not always perfect and precious outside of your presence. And they've had a rough week, and they're in there loving those kids. And sometimes that's some of you, because you're in there, and you're like, oh, I need to take a break from this. But you have no idea that you're changing the trajectory of those kids' lives. You have no idea the ministry that you have to these parents that are in this room. When we come together, it is not so we can just sit in here and hear a sermon or hear some music. It is that we are here to care for each other and to love each other. And I don't know about you, but I've got a lot of people I know on Facebook, but I know nothing about them. We've got to get in the room with each other crucial in the ways that we live our lives and the way that we grow. How we respond to other people really does matter. Our generosity to those in need really does matter. Our serving other people really does matter. You have, you, I've just been reminded in the last couple of weeks, if someone walks in and they do not look culturally normal, but you don't respond like they're not culturally normal, do you realize that it is, like, it is like a wall within their heart begins to fall just with a smile on your face? It's amazing the ministry God has given us within the church. Usually people don't walk up to you and say, you know, your smile just meant the world to me. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they do. Most of the time they don't. And that's why you walk out thinking, I'm not sure that my investment is paying off. Because oftentimes people don't come and tell you. But when you begin to see as Jesus sees, and you begin to realize this is exactly what Jesus does. By me doing this in this context, I am aligning my heart and my life with the mission of Christ. And all I did was give a side hug, you know? Christian side hug, right. Chick-fil-A gift card for your troubles, yeah. Right. How we respond to other people really does matter. If I were to give you one thing, the one thing I would want to leave you with, and I'm going to wrap this up, is that following Jesus is a way of life, and it is the only path to true life. It is, following Jesus is not something that we do with everything else we do. It is a radical restructuring of our lives. Now, if that sounds bad to you, you're still enamored with your old life. That's why Jesus often went to people who were broken, because they were not enamored with their current life. They were looking for something different, and they just had no idea until Jesus or someone else told them how awesome that other life could be. So I want to encourage you, as you look at your life, as you look at your faith, to understand your faith is not a part of you. It is either all of you or it is none of you. It will never be a part of you. This is, this is when we read about God spewing out lukewarm water, you know, that other feel-good passage in Scripture that no one likes to talk about. I want you to be hot or I want you to be cold. 
Because if you're in the middle and you're trying to bridge the gap without giving me everything or giving me nothing, just be honest, I'll spew you out of my mouth. That's not very loving words, by the way. <laughs> but that's what he says. And it's not because he's angry or he hates people. It's because he wants you to either get it or recognize you're not getting it. Don't pretend like you're getting it, but not. This is where Christian frustration is today. This is where people are frustrated. I don't see God at work in my life. I don't see things happening in my life. I don't understand why you are praying and something happens when you pray and I'm praying and nothing happens when I'm praying. I, I don't understand when I read Scripture and, and all these people light up like the best thing in the world just happened. But I just think, gosh, I'm tired of reading this. You know, there is a difference when we understand that following Jesus is a way of life, it is not just a part of life. The way we talk, the way we walk, the way we live, that's why I'm starting a song here. You know, it, it matters. It's a way of life. And it's the only way of life that is true life. Everything else pales in comparison. And that is, I think, the greatest travesty in a life is someone who lives a full life thinking they know Christ. And yet, Christ says, there's one day I'm going to say, I didn't know you. But look what I did, all these things I did for you, but you didn't know me. So this is, this is what the enemy does. He uses religion to choke out the gospel. The gospel is a new way of life. And it's open to anyone who believes, anyone who calls, anyone who is broken, anyone who repents. I was talking with Jeremy just a few minutes ago, and he was talking about something I think is just so crucial, just... We all look back and say, oh, things are getting so bad now. Have you ever read history? Every generation says that. Man, it's so bad now. I mean, literally, I've, I've shared this now for several weeks now. In Revelation, we're, we're literally less than 70 years outside of the resurrection of Jesus. And five of the seven prophecies to the churches from Jesus himself through the apostle John were, repent, come back. I mean, like, we're 70, we're now 2,000 years out, 70 years out, they were saying, you guys are already messing this up. <laughs> Come back. That is an invitation that Jesus is constantly giving us, but that, as we've seen in this parable, one day will end. Following Jesus is a way of life. It's the only path to true life. One of our slogans that we've said over and over again is love God, love people, period. That's something we've said here. It's been under our logo. We use it less than we used to because quite honestly, I think most people misunderstood it. Because we think love is all about a feeling. I feel good around you. I try to make you feel good. I won't do anything to make you feel bad. I'm loving just like Jesus. Jesus said there's a chasm and I'm not even going to let Lazarus dip his finger in a bowl of water and give it to you while you're in your torment. That does not make people feel good. It's a warning. Love is an action. And it has to align with the way that God loves if we're going to claim to love like Jesus. So loving God is not just feeling good about God. It's how we're living our lives. Loving people is not just not hurting anyone's feelings. We're concerned about sharing the truth with them. It's really an amazing change when you understand the way Jesus described things. Let me ask you this. What chasms are your choices creating with people right now? 
I'm not going to read the parable of the lost sheep. I was going to read it, but I'm not going to read it. You know the parable of the lost sheep. The parable of the lost sheep shows that Jesus wants to bridge every chasm with every single person on the planet. And he talks about the 99 and the one who's lost. And who wouldn't go after the one who was lost, even if they had the 99 with them? That is Jesus' heart for those people that reject him. I'm still pursuing you. I'm still going after you. I still love you. I still want you to see that this world that you're trying to get a piece of, you know, it's not worth it. We've got to look at the chasms we've created with others. Gosh, you know what would just do my heart well is if we, and I don't mean this in any way as a judgment of who is here, but you know what would do my heart well is if we had people from every background, every racial identity. I mean, if we demonstrated the diversity of God's creative power in the world within our midst, there's some chasms that are really hard to break down, aren't there? Gosh, I'd love if we could break some of those chasms. We could bridge them. I think that would just be a wonderful thing. What chasms are our choices creating with people? What about our egos? What about how we separate ourselves from other people? What about we judge people that are outside of the faith or we judge people inside the church and we enjoy it? (laughs) We're not trying to lead them to something better. We're just enjoying that they've messed up. Question I want to just leave with you and I hope that you'll think about this throughout this week is on these chasms, especially with God and with other people, which of those chasms can you begin to bridge today? So we can look at this and we can look at, well, God is not as inclusive as we sometimes want Him to be. But in reality, what He's calling us to is to bridge the chasm now. What do we need to do to bridge those chasms today? Would you pray with me? Father, God, I thank you for the work of so many that have gone before us. I thank you for those that are such a great demonstration of loving others and loving you. I pray for those that are in this room and they know they're just not experiencing that life-giving relationship with Christ the way that they, they really want to and perhaps they are experiencing in some way a chasm right now. God, I know, that you can, I know that you can bridge that. You are standing at the door knocking, inviting them into a relationship with you, and I pray that this would be the moment in which they would do that. Father, I pray for those of us who we've gotten so used to the lives that we're living that we've stopped really looking at what do we need to change within ourselves. Right now we are creating chasms with you and with others. You've become just a part of our schedule, just something that is a part of our lives, but is not our whole lives. You're something that, you know, we talk about and we tell people we're Christians, but yet we're not really following your way. And I pray that you would hear our prayers of repentance, that you would lead us to demonstrate your love more fully and purely. I pray that you would help those in this room that have broken relationships with others that will begin to break those down. We'll begin to see within families and friendships and coworkers these walls begin to fall and 
relationships begin to rebound, that we'll actually be living the life you called us to, which is communal with each other, needing each other. Father, I pray that in all that we do and all that we worship, that we will recognize you are our greatest treasure. And if we have to give up everything else in our lives, if we have you, we have the greatest treasure in the world. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.